Welcome to the Optimalist Podcast, where we examine the higher order capabilities that we need for an optimal future with AI. I'm Sarah, your host for this exploration of mindfulness, attention, focus, and motivation, all elements of human flourishing. So how do we cultivate them? Erica Marcus has the pleasure of being the mindfulness director for a small district in Cape Elizabeth, Maine. This is the culmination of almost two decades of working with youth in various capacities as a middle school English teacher, a high school health teacher, a mindfulness educator, and an outdoor educator. In the spring of 2022, Erica published Attention Hijacked, Using Mindfulness to Reclaim Your Brain from Tech, in which she offers a compassionate approach to bringing awareness and intention to tech use geared towards teens and the adults who care for them. Listen as Erica and I discuss intention, getting students to pause, and noticing the body's reaction to things, and being okay with choosing the calmer one. All this and more in today's conversation. I have learned a lot about how to approach young people around this stuff through like error, (laughs) I would say. Like I went in pretty hard. at first with this idea that like, ah, be alarmed. Like the way that you're using these things is bad for you and your brain. And um, there's not a lot of purchase there, it turns out with teenagers. They don't really want to be spoken to in that way. And their parents often, you know, speak to them in that way in these like very black and white terms. And so one of the things that I found most useful and I think in terms of like helping the people that I was sitting with really stop and think about what was going on for them was like true and genuine curiosity. And I, Mm. I have that because I recognize that, that I have my own struggles and my own set of challenges. And I actually, and when I was interviewing, I can't remember if it was Evan or Jeremy, they're both quoted in the book, but they were talking about how like they actually hate it when parents try to pretend that they know exactly what young people are going through, like that teens are going through. They were like, just own that, like, you don't know, you know? And I, I think about a lot actually of like, yeah, like I can certainly say I have my own challenges and struggles and maybe there's relatability and connectivity through that, but also to own like, but I actually have no idea what it's like to really have um, an expectation that my social world is mediated online. Um, Because that's not Mm -hmm. my lived experience. And so like, going in with genuine curiosity about that, because I am genuinely curious what that's like for them, I think gives them space to pause and, um, you know, reflect on the ways that that is not problematic for them, but also reflect on the ways that is it is problematic for them. And, And they could pretty quickly recognize Uh, at least one way that that did not ultimately serve them. One of the other things that I like that you do from the beginning, and you go back and forth throughout the book, revisiting this structure is bringing to mind all of the good that technology does fill our world with. And this comes from being an educator, right? I mean, this is the difference between an educator writing a book like this and almost anybody else, because you are living that experience of questioning and leading students into questioning themselves or ask or or into new territory they're not used to thinking about or exploring, but you're doing it from a lens of of curiosity about the world that they are living in. And so asking them questions about, you know, what it is like, here are all the ways that technology is enriching my life. What do you find positive about it? Asking them questions about not only their technology use, but where they see real positives. And I'm so interested to know what kids would um, be answering. I don't know if you've, have you had the opportunity experience to talk to kids about that? I would love to know what you've heard from them. I could see there being a wide array of responses there, both good and bad. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I've been doing lessons on screen use for many, many years now and um, anywhere from fifth grade all the way to seniors. 
And there is there is a wide array of responses, you know, for some kids, they just love the entertainment of video games, they think it's fun. Mm -hmm. And they hang out with their friends through their video games. So it's really connecting for them. I have students um, in here who talked about like, perfecting, for example, a skateboarding move. I'm not even going to pretend to remember what it was at this point. But this, <laughs> this young eighth grader at the time, I think, was telling me about like how she watched this YouTube video and learned this particular skill from watching it over and over again. Um, at one of the high schools, at the high school that I worked at prior to the middle school where I am now, um, you know, I had students who we're not finding always in their home communities support for their identities. So they were LGBTQ students who didn't find acceptance there and were really relying on their technology to communicate with folks who have similar lived experiences with them and who understand um, and to like learn more about their own identities through those connections or reading about other people's experiences. So, I mean, the list goes on and on, but those are a few that I would pull out off the bat. And so I want to pause here for a second and just rewind our conversation here. And maybe we could give some insight or rather you can give some insight to our audience as to how you got to the point where typically I ask people how, like, maybe to give us some insight into their journey to where they got to the work that they're doing now, but maybe we can redirect it a little bit for for us today in thinking about what it was that led to the creation of this book. I know you told me last week how that it was kind of like happenstance, but there definitely had to have been inklings of ideas that were I guess, showing up in different ways in your life and the work that you're doing that led to you finally putting this book together. So kind of the journey that led to this book and then to what you're doing today. Yeah, I mean, I can speak to just my interest in the content and the book feels yeah, like a Yeah, anything you want. Um, yeah, definitely. That's pretty much what yeah, I'm, I'm looking okay. for too, because this is really just an artifact of, of probably a larger right. context of what you're doing. Right. I love that. I love that idea as an artifact. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, I'm going to use that. <laughs> Here's my artifact. Me too. No, um, I'm like, wow, that was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I think part of my, where this came from was purely personal. Like my relationship with technology was very interesting to me because I was someone who was practicing mindfulness, practicing living intentionally, and was finding that like, in some ways, my technology use was a little bit of um, a dark spot for me. Like, I had these habits that were leaving me on my technology in ways that were not aligned necessarily with my values or what I wanted to be doing with my time or the way I wanted to be living. And I wasn't seeing it until I did. And that was surprising to me. I just assumed, you know, like my mindfulness practice would illuminate all parts <laughs> of my life. <laughs> um, and it wasn't. And it wasn't. And that's okay. Um, and, you know, until, until I started really paying attention to this one aspect. And so part of my interest in the book or the way it came to be was just like, huh, what happens when I start paying attention and like what's helpful to me when I start paying attention and what things, yeah, do I find like allow me to live closer to my own personal values and what I know is important to me and how I want to be spending my time. So there was that, that layer. And then, and then also just working with teenagers and um, again, just that curiosity about their experience um, of using technology and what they found was helpful, what they liked about it, um, the things that they really struggled with, and maybe were looking for some support with, or would be at least open to considering um, some support around. So yeah, I would say those are like the two threads that ultimately landed me where I am. And I, I just, I just love the conversations 
with kids about this stuff because it, it's I'm just still so interested in like mm-hmm. how they think about it and interact with it. And they're often very intelligent um, in their responses and profound at times. So it's just, yeah, I just appreciate their perspective as someone who, you know, is not in their generation and has had these different experiences than they've had. Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering now, like in the time since you (laughs) pretty recent still. So I'm, I'm just trying to frame this question correctly, but in the time since writing it and, and kind of going through those stepping stones of realization that you were just describing that you were going through, have you noticed big changes in even yourself and the way like you coming out of the other side of putting together basically like a manual for young people to help them navigate the world that we live in and think about it and become a little bit more attentive to their habits. And so I'm just wondering how that has changed. Any of this has changed the way you are now um, having a relationship with technology and your own, your own children as well, because you, I don't know if they're old enough. Um, I don't know. I don't know the ages of your kids, but, (laughs) but I'm sure it doesn't (laughs) matter because, uh, because the tech use within the home is also something that impacts all of us, no matter, no matter what age our kids are. Sure. I mean, I I sort of make this joke at the beginning, maybe a lame joke, one would say, but I try to make this joke (laughs) about like, I had this revelation and then I changed everything, right? And that is not what happened. And I, I still very much would say that about now, you know, like, I don't feel like I'm a person who like had this revelatory moment, even through writing the book and like suddenly all the pieces of my relationship with technology are exactly in balance as I want them to be. And like, I just feel really good about it all. Like for me, and this is probably part of my interest in it and like ongoing interest in it is because it is a daily practice of making choices that are not always easy to make for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially when I'm tired or, you know, having a hard time for whatever reason. I, there are always things on technology that are the easier choice or the more compelling choice for me. With that said, I think the thing that is true is I've committed in this long-term way to saying like, I am going to keep paying attention and I'm going to be open to noticing when things feel out of balance or I don't feel good about something. And I'm going to try something different for the next time. Like, for example, I went through a period of my life where I would look at my phone up until bedtime. Um, and I'm a great sleeper. Mm-hmm. And it actually, I don't find that it really interferes with my sleep. So it's not problematic on that level. But uh, for me, I noticed it was crowding out reading fiction, which I've just loved my entire yeah. life. So now I have this routine of reading a book before bed. And that's my choice. And sometimes I find myself with my phone scrolling at at night, you know, and Mm -hmm. then like, I'm tired and want to go to sleep. And so the next day, you know, I can evaluate that and decide, you know, okay, well, if I want this to be part of my routine, then let's get back to the book and leave the phone downstairs to charge um, or on the dresser to charge so that it's out of reach. So it's sort of more of a commitment to like, paying attention to to the choices and to if they feel good or not. You know, I appreciate the question about the kids. So my kiddos are three and six right now. And, you know, part of my choices around technology right now are just how am I engaging with my tech in front of them? Yes, I love And yeah, and I mean, even that feels hard. Like, it is so easy (laughs) to pick up my phone because... I want to search for something, something comes to my mind, and I want to do it right then. Or I don't know, I just I want to check my email for some reason, or there's just something on there that is compelling me. And, you know, like I do actually, you know, I want to give them that attention in this moment. So that's, that's definitely a layer of it. I love that you're bringing up modeling 
in the home. Cause I, I think I was saying before that the modeling in the home reminds me of how I was t- mentioning earlier about it, not all of this stuff, whether we're talking about technology specifically or mindfulness or attention, all of these things are wrapped together. But I think it's so important increasingly for us to recognize that it's not just a school thing and that it's why we're increasingly talking to both not just educators, but parents as well, because, you know, they're aware of their fractured relationship with their own technology and in varying levels, um, and not knowing how to handle it or not realizing that when they are around their kids or in the home, that they are the ones that are likely influencing a lot of what, of what, I mean, just like we influence a lot of other behaviors. I, bring up that idea or parts of that idea and weave them into a lot of conversations. Cause I think people would be, I think, shocked at that level of disconnect that it sort of creates. And that's without even getting into what it is that each of you are actually doing and what the content or mm-hmm. speed at which you're doing something is affecting your brain or your body. And then usually when I bring that up with people, I hear a couple days later, they're like, now I can't stop thinking about every time I touch my phone in front of my daughter. (laughs) Yeah. Which I mean, if you can do that with like, again, just inviting in that curiosity without like, there's probably going to be a little shame and guilt in there also, because that's more human, you know, we have that, but like, wow, like how interesting to see that, to really see that because we're not, you know, we're not paying attention that way typically. Um, And I hope that's true for me. I hope I'm like even more hyper aware after this conversation around it, because I want I want to be noticing and making choices that, again, are, you know, the things I want to be doing versus habitual or impulsive. I loved when you were talking about your own practices before and what's changed, but three things stood out to me is you talking about attention and paying attention to your attention and um, routines and then reflections as a part of almost like a cycle. And I think that Mm. a lot of us get a little afraid. It's almost like people kind of get a little taken aback when they, I think, sometimes hear the word routine because building routines is like, we know that routines in a way are are how a lot of the best stuff that we can possibly get from ourselves or become becoming our best selves, a lot of it is going to be because of small or big routines that we implement and carry through and then learn to reflect on and change or tweak when they're no longer working. We have to think about the way we spend our time. I love that you said that before too. Like, how do you want to spend your time? How do you want each day to look for you? And so I think our routines Mm -hmm. are often a big reflection and response to that. I I guess I'm right now thinking about it in the student's point of view, but like, how do we work in routines that build attention and mindfulness and reflection that might not directly have to do with tech use either, but they're going to have an effect on on the individual in a way that it will then kind of, I think, force them to think about how they spend their time with technology. Like, like what are you seeing that works with students in a way that gives them individual responsibility for these things rather than always relying on someone to tell them, no, put your phone down, no, do this. Like we want everyone to step into this responsibly and that includes students and adults. Um, but what, what do you see that kind of works as far as getting students to, to do these things? Well, I heard sort of a, a couple of things in there. One was about like routines around anything, just like in, including, I don't know, mm-hmm. mindfulness or attention and then the layer of the technology specifically. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, one thing is like giving them opportunities for mindfulness practice or reflection, regular opportunities so they can sort of experiment with it. And right now I'm talking as an educator because I just, all of this as a parent is like infinitely harder. Um, As a parent, I really just sort of like fall back to modeling and conversation. But, you know, as a, as a teacher, one thing that I did this past year that most students seemed to appreciate was 
literally, we just called it a stillness challenge. And I really didn't do a lot of direction around like, what to do with that time, I gave them some options. But the idea was like, let's take a minute or two minutes or whatever we decide to try to stop and just let things settle for that minute or two minutes. And Mm -hmm. like, can we collectively have an experience of being settled? And I work in a middle school and I just find sometimes gamifying things are compelling. So we we (laughs) had this little wall and they could like, sit if they could be together for a minute in relative stillness then they could like put a little icon on the wall at a minute and then they could decide collectively if they wanted to try for another minute and another minute so it was really I put it on them to decide if they wanted to do it or not every time so there were days where they were like nope (laughs) we don't Mm -hmm. want to but on the whole (laughs) most most students seem to like especially over time just really value not being asked to do something for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. And I tried to emphasize that part of just how they were asked to do so much all day long to pay attention to notice to and this was really about like not doing anything at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then just inviting in reflection of every now and then like what their experience of that was. Yeah, I was going to ask how often students opt to do a to elongate that time? Do they do, do they want to add a minute or two or is it, or they just want to take the opportunity and then move on? It really depended on the group of kids, honestly. Some of them had a really hard time with it and would opt to not do it, which I was, you know, always happy to, but I would say the majority of them were really interested in adding minutes. And sometimes we'd get to like, eight minutes and he'd be like, I actually don't think we can go any further. <laughs> we like That's have other great. To <laughs> Let's unpause. Really long time. <laughs> oh my goodness. Time to get back to the plan. That's great. And I would love to see reflections on stuff like that too. Um, you're making me want to interview students now, like all of this, just diving in, even before we started talking, just like I said earlier, reading through some of how kids interacted with you through this book or contributed their own experiences is really making me, you know, want to talk to students again, because I've been out of the classroom now for six years. And so a lot of like the public's increasing awareness of what this stuff is doing to our brains. I mean, it's really very new. Um, People weren't talking about it like that Mm -hmm. when I was last in the classroom. It's really escalated before the pandemic, but I would say mostly since then. So I hadn't really had that opportunity to talk to them about it. And so now I'm, I'm craving, I'm craving it. So my hope for next year is to be working with a group of high school students. And this is perhaps helping me make it so um, Mm -hmm. to do some work around tech use, healthy technology use and have them maybe generate some lessons to teach with middle school or even upper elementary school around this stuff. And so if that comes to fruition, I'm going to see if we can get them to talk to you about their experiences. Yeah, that would be amazing. You have to be comfortable with this consistency, which is super hard for everybody. Mm -hmm. But there, I don't know, it's like a double-edged sword, right? We know that students thrive like when they do have a consistent calm classroom or routine that they can depend on but at the same time you're cognizant like is this boring or my kids just coming in and going through like a cycle because I've trained them to do this or are they actually making the decision to build a routine that's healthy for themselves like where does it become just Mm. like a rote thing and where does it continue to become something that's helpful and supporting growth and supporting our relationship to ourselves, to our technology, to the kids in our school, to my teacher, and then beyond that to people outside of in, in the real world or the, or the extended world or at my home. So like, you know, I think the reflections are part of that. 
if you take out that reflection part and you're never thinking about what you're doing or why you've made the decision or if something has to change, or like you're talking about this idea of the stillness challenge and just allowing yourself to to not do anything, but then also reflecting on how did it feel to not do that? Like, how does my body react or change? Or how do I mentally feel if I do that once a day? I'm always thinking about the effectiveness of routines and building building things like this in and how difficult it is for people to accept that routines might feel like they're boring at first, but then you realize that you crave something about it. Well, I guess what I'll say about the book is a curiosity. Like, I'm so curious out of anyone who's interacted with it, how many people actually have tried (laughs) because I think what you said about it's hard for us to pause and like take those moments is so true and I mean I could even imagine myself like blowing pesos and being like I'll get back to that yeah like I'll like check that out later and not do it so (laughs) I, I do really like that it's there I'm super curious about um if anyone has tried them out And yeah, if so, if that was like a nice experience that for them to take that moment. So just kind of separating from the book a little bit for a second, maybe want to describe to everybody what your role is in working with young people at this moment. And, and then I wanted Mm -hmm. to talk about how we can support young people, some of a lot of people listening are teachers. A lot of them are teachers and parents. Some of them might not be teachers, might um, work with young people or be raising young people in a different capacity. But how can we support young people in developing self-awareness? Like, So thinking about the work that you do and how we can help other people find, find ways to do this on their own, even if they don't have training. Um, sure. Well, so I currently have this rather unique position of mindfulness director through an organization called Whole School Mindfulness. So they are um, helping to support and mentor mindfulness directors across the country uh, to be in schools and really hold this idea of mindfulness. And we sort of like to think, you know, at one point, like PE wasn't a part of education necessarily. So like, this is also a piece that, though unique and new, I think really does have a, a place in education. And it's helpful to have people in those spaces to continue to support that work. Um, so it's, it's, like I said, pretty unique and new to have that role. And so I've been with the same district I'm going to my fourth year there. and. It's looked a little different every year. Um, sometimes I've taught it as sort of like mindfulness as a specials course. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes I've partnered with teachers and go into their classrooms and we focus on some specific theme. And sometimes I work with teachers directly and then sort of support them in exploring it in their own classroom routines. And then sometimes I work with families. So lots of different layers or touch points within the system. Are you using your book as support when you're working with teachers or whole classes? Um, I have, I use some of the tools from the book, but I don't necessarily like whip out my book. (laughs) um, That wouldn't be weird. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So here's a book I wrote. (laughs) You just bring Um, 30 copies of it to with you. <laughs> Signed. Oh, do you want me to sign that for you? They'd be like, oh, here comes the book lady again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I haven't I haven't done that exactly. Um, but there's like a technology survey that I really like to use that's in there. Um, I have them like chart their use using Um, screen time features on their phones. And those are pieces that are in the book. So I do some of the exercises from it, but I wouldn't, I don't like teach a class around it or bring the Mm -hmm. physical object to them. (laughs) Um, But I, I'm, (laughs) yeah. Um, But I'm working right now, something I'm excited about and hopeful for is um, I'm working with a tech integrator in the high school 
for this coming year, we are trying to create a structure and advisory where students um, have the opportunity to check their screen time regularly and reflect on that. So I'm hoping we get some folks who are excited about piloting that. And then I'm really curious to see what happens when students are offered these opportunities week after week to look. And so will that be their screen time just on their personal device? Yeah, on on their phones, really sort of working from that as a premise. Um, And also just inviting them in because I know they're, you know, kids are using video game consoles and other things as well. But um, the only thing we have the, the data for is the phone. Right. Reflecting on their use, like what kind of things do you anticipate they might be reflecting on? Is this like part of a journey to help them really become aware and like working on self-awareness and attentiveness to their own behaviors and just kind of recognizing what they are in their reflections during this process? Yeah, I think especially at first, just asking them like, does anything surprise you? when you look at this, does anything concern you when you look at this? Um, Because I, you know, when we have in the past, when I've had like seventh and eighth graders take out their phones, inevitably, there are a number of kids who are like, oh my gosh, I was on TikTok for like seven hours on Saturday Mm -hmm. or something. Um, And they are surprised because they, you know, in those moments weren't really aware of it. But just to pause and like really look back at the data, I think is meaningful to them. So this is our sort of experiment. And I'm hoping that as we go, we can ask some more nuanced questions about Mm -hmm. like, noticing their tech use as it relates to like other ways that they spend their time or can they notice how they feel in their bodies, but keeping it simple and and consistent. I think that was a word that you were emphasizing feels important and we'll see what happens. I'm super curious. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I'm, you know, I just love that you opened this conversation today by talking about, I wrote it down in my notes here, like from, you were talking about your own experiences leading up to starting to work on the book, but you were asking this question of how do I want to be spending my time? It's something that I think about all the time, especially since really being deeply involved in um, doing this kind of work and research and talking to a lot of people about attention. But I also extend that question to attention. Like, how do I want to be spending my time? Then also like, how do I want to be spending my attention? Which for a lot of us comes after the examination of our attention and time that you're explaining um, that, that these students will do coming up soon. Just the, the reason why I keep going back to that question is because I think it is really compelling and that so many of us do not ask ourselves that, um, to the point where I wonder if, if we went and asked that question for on the first day of school, all over the place and just said, how do I want to be spending my time this year to like a group of eighth graders to a group of 10th graders, like to the staff of a whole district? How do you want to spend your time in this building? Like, I wonder if anyone's ever asked them that, how do you want to spend your time? They're always being asked to think about and prepare for tomorrow or the next day or the next week or you know, what's coming up next year or their like quote unquote future or a job. And so put all of that stuff aside because it's going to come anyway, but what do you want to do now? And I think part of our ease at escaping the present and, and getting lost in, you know, scrolling and entertainment culture is that we are so not used to being asked to be present and having it demanded of us in a way that makes it feel valued. We use the word presence and mindfulness. Like we, we use them, but we kind of don't understand them. Like they're kind of just plugins for different things, but we don't sit and think, what does it really mean for me to be mindful and attentive and make 
choices about my time and about Mm -hmm. who I pay attention to, about who I spend time with, about what I spend time looking at or doing. Like my present is important. I I just wonder how often we're, we're talking to young people in this way. Do you think about that at all? Like uh, you must, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I I think it's an interesting question and I might add another layer to it because when I think about these students, like, especially in middle school, they're like, they come in and they don't get to choose how they spend their time at all. I mean, right. Really? Because it's all predetermined by these adults in their lives. So it's almost like a hard, it's a, it feels like a trick question or something like, how do you want to spend your time? Too bad. Like go to math. <laughs> go to Exactly. Does like the asking of that question force the adults in the situation to then reevaluate how we do things? Like there's a lot that could happen when you, when you do yeah. take the, op- when you challenge yourself to be the asker of that question. What's well, interesting, we're starting this year, this new thing we're calling, I don't, it, it was written in the schedule as like genius hour, but this idea of like, mm-hmm. can we put in an hour a week, right, where students get to have freedom, and it's new, and we're exploring the idea, and I used to work at a school that had a, a flex Friday, where the whole Friday was dedicated to student projects, and um, independent studies. I think that is like a tiny little step um, to be a little bit more responsive to that idea of like, yeah, when we really look at the structure of the day, students have so little control over what's happening moment to moment. And it, it's it's an important question to ask and and like might be pretty radical in terms of what it could possibly mean. Yeah, it's another thing that now I'm I'm wanting to ask young people. Who wants to lend us your young people? <laughs> questions do. <laughs> um, it's just bubbling up. Um, you know, and it's this is actually this this will be I believe episode 18 of the Optimalist podcast and we're still very much at the beginning but still in 18 episodes I really think this is the first one that um and it's because of the nature of the book itself but it's the first one that really we're able to dive this much into the mindset of the student or the young person rather than other points of view and and different areas of expertise but this is really allowing us to think about you know that world that they live in and putting putting ourselves in it. And I think that that's one of the, it's a reason why I jumped on. And if anyone listening doesn't know this, like we have a a group of teachers, most of them are high school and middle school librarians actually, um, who are reading this book and thinking about how to start the school year with, they're not giving it physically to their kids, but they're pulling things out of it to use in the library setting it's actually leading, leading with curiosity, like you're saying, pulling out things and having kids journal or reflect or pause or stop. And, um, I think that, that it being, a, being structured in a way that puts you in, you know, it is talking to students helps adults also, I think, think about it from that point of view. So I like that we're, mm-hmm. we're in that mindset for this episode, which is kind of a neat way to, to think. And it's the reason why we're doing any of this stuff. (laughs) Right. I was going to share, this is a little bit tangential, but perhaps related. I was just thinking about um, for this, there's a screen free week that's sponsored by this organization called Fair Play. And I've been trying to get my school involved. And so every year when I do these little lessons in classrooms, you know, I ask students, it's up to them, but if you could, change one thing about your screen use, you know, sort of respecting this idea of like a screen free week, what would you do? Mm -hmm. Um, And then, and then the question is like, well, if you decide to reduce your screen time, or let's say you didn't decide to do it, but like, if you were to, what would you do instead? And so we had this wall, this bulletin board full of all these student answers to like, what would you do with your time? If you were going to like, shave, you know, half an hour, an hour off your daily screen use. And I found that very powerful. I don't know if it was for other people in my building, but for me (laughs) to walk by 
and see all these, you know, students, they felt like quite heartfelt, typically, reflections about, okay, so like, what, how else might I spend my time? I, I really like that and the symbolism of that. Yes. And it makes me want to extend it to, you know, if you said, even if it's a half hour a day, um, or I mean, cause we know how deep some, some people, some students are getting into hours on certain, on certain apps or doing certain things on their phone. But, um, even if it were a half hour a day, I want to extend it to like, well, what's keeping us, not just that person, that individual, what's keeping us from doing it? Like, where does a compulsion come from? And I think that's where mm-hmm. the great, you know, part of you also taking the time to explain and go into the science and the neuroscience behind what's happening to us when we decide to, or why we make the decision to do the easy thing that is likely not great for us instead of not doing the easy thing and doing the thing that we want to do. Because in the case of our technology, like there's a lot of other situations where we can say we make the, we choose the easy thing instead of the complicated thing because our brains don't want to do the complicated thing all the time. But in the case of our phones, right? They don't, (laughs) it takes a lot of energy. And so in the case of our phones being the easy thing, not only is it easy and requires no real energy, you know, it's taking up a different part of our energy. It's also making us tired. So it's not like we're choosing to do nothing over doing something challenging. We're choosing to do something that's actually eating up Mm -hmm. our, our energy and making us tired and then making us wake up the next day, not being able to, or not wanting to do something challenging again. And that's the hard part. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I read, what was it called? They called it like revenge scrolling or something. And it was like specifically, I think I read this, I don't even remember where, but there was this article about this idea that like people will stay up really late when they feel like they don't have any time in their day and they're not doing anything productive with their time, but they're like scrolling because like, it's my time, damn it. Like I will do do what I want to do. And I, you know, I could imagine that being true for kids too, where they feel like, their entire day is like hyper structured and they get to the end and they're like, well, now this is my time, but I'm too tired to do anything. So I am going to sit here and like look at my phone for hours and hours and hours because I get to choose. Yeah. And you know what that even I I remember um, from the days when I was in the classroom and this wasn't even scrolling wasn't a big thing, you know, at that. I mean, I'm talking like I was in the classroom 40 years ago. It wasn't that long ago. But I wasn't a scroller. (laughs) I was never a phone at night person during that time. But even earlier before phones were a thing really much at all, or at least smartphones, but I remember being so busy as a teacher for years and years and having so much to do, like little things to remember. Like my brain was so filled with the stuff that had to be done even in one day that when it would get to be, and I really needed to be sleeping by like nine because I was so tired and had to get up so early the next day, but nine o'clock or, or something would come and I would feel like now I need to do something like something else that's not work. Like I wouldn't get to think about like, what's my entertainment or what do I want to do until then? And so I would sometimes think nothing of like, now I'm going to start a movie at 10 o'clock. And I'm like, why am I starting a movie at 10 (laughs) o'clock? Like when really what I need to do is go to bed. Mm -hmm. But that exact framework of like, I didn't get to do what I wanted to do today. So now I need to do something that I want to do. And then that, and that builds up for the whole week. And then you get teacher tired at the end. (laughs) You know, it comes from never giving yourself (laughs) an actual break. Like putting myself in front of a screen at 10 mm-hmm. from 10 to midnight was not a break for me. Before I ask our series of ending questions that we ask everybody on this show, is there anything that you want to leave listeners with knowing that a lot of them are educators, all different levels, um, but everybody's usually working with either training teachers or or working directly with students in some capacity um, if they're listening to this show. So is there anything you want to leave with them as far as what you would recommend how to begin 
this journey as an individual, as an adult, or as an individual trying to work on mindfulness with students, like how to get started on your own or with students? Like, what would you, what kind of advice do you want to leave people? Come on, give them all the answers. (laughs) (laughs) So I, there was like another answer coming to my mind before you finish Mm -hmm. your question, which I'm going to say first, and then maybe I'll say something to, to the specific question. But as you were talking about like what, what I was hearing was like, what do you want to leave people with? I just, I really want to acknowledge that like, this is such a new set of circumstances and situation. And I feel like we have this sense that like, we need to figure it out right now. We need to like fix it. And I don't think it's like, it's not something that we can like fix um, in terms of, you know, our own relationship with technology or students relationship with technology. Like this is a, long-term big cultural shift thing that has happened in our world and so like I hope we can all go forward with just some grace for ourselves and our students and all of us who are trying to negotiate this this world at this moment in time like can we be really gentle and curious Mm -hmm. um, with ourselves and with our students as we explore these questions um sort of the first thing that came to me and then with regards to mindfulness with students or mindful technologies i think i do believe starting with ourselves first is really important Mm -hmm. so step one like getting curious about our own use um you know, maybe regularly checking our screen time as a first step and just noticing more or like now I'm going to be aware every time I pick up my phone and my daughters are nearby um, after this podcast, Mm -hmm. right? So like all of those little starting points and then for ourselves and then when working with students, I think asking them questions about their experience and like being willing to have conversations with them as a starting point is, is what I would try. I would even add to that, allowing them to ask questions of you too, like about, about your own relationship to, to what it is that you do, you know, thinking about, especially one's own children, you know, if, they're going to notice if you're on your phone for two hours a day or while you're supposed to be, maybe they notice less the time exactly, but more so if you're distracted when you are supposed to be doing something with them or you're watching them, you know, play softball or, or you're at ballet practice, but you're on your phone. I mean, it's everywhere. We're all doing it constantly. And I think, and of course I could now keep going into other directions with that, but I'm going to stop myself and we're going to wind down by talking about some of the other things, some of the other things that maybe you are consuming as someone who does consume things healthily, I'm sure. Um, Is there anything you are reading (laughs) or listening to or watching that maybe you'd like to share with listeners or recommend. Um, It could be all three of those. It could be none of those. And you could say, nope, I don't consume anything. And then we'll just move on. But I wanted to give you an opportunity to share a little (laughs) bit about what kind of things um, you're interested in these days. Yeah, thank you. Um, I and part of me was like, I better like go back into my piles of books and find <laughs> something like really profound to share. And then I was like, No, I don't want to do that. <laughs> like that's not that's not true or authentic to me. Um, so I, I tend to like, read a lot of like our little free library books. We have these like very sweet little free libraries all around my neighborhood. And I, I like this, this way of accessing um, books, just like based on what other people are consuming um, around. And I just finished this book that's really just sitting with me called Enrique's Journey, which was written by Sonia Nazario. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning author. And she retold the story of this one migrant's journey from Honduras um, into our 
country and then like also just like was doing a lot of explaining of what the push-pull factors are from um, some of these South and Central American countries and how people end up here. And I I think it's sitting with me for a couple of reasons, one of which is like there's there's so much to story to like the details of people's lives and lived mm. experiences that allow one to empathize and like be more humane once they've internalized someone else's experience and story. And so um, that's one layer. And then just that specifically to like knowing that we're in this moment in time where there is such a national conversation around immigration and and Portland, Maine, we have a lot of asylum seeking families coming in and just like thinking about each of the individual families and like what brought them here and what they had to go through to come here. Um, And having this one little insight into it, I, I've just been, it's just been really powerful for me. And I'm not sure what my next move with is with, with sort of holding these, this story, but it feels like it's, there's something there for me to learn um, that's a very different life than, than I've lived and, and important to, to know and hold for myself. I love that. Um, that was such a beautiful description, like <laughs> weaved into like <laughs> a, your own life and, and journey. I love it. What about listening or watching anything? Um, I, we're watching The Bear on Hulu. Do you know this? Or is it bear? Oh, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh It's so... I recently watched the whole thing. It was so amazing. Okay. Everyone kept recommending it. And we finally... We finally started. So Me too. And I didn't know my brother was watching it and I didn't even know what it was about. And I'm like, um, I'm also in the process of canceling one by one, all of my streaming subscriptions. So I was kind of listening to a few things. People are like, you have to watch this. You have to watch this. So I'm like, let me get a few of these things done before I cancel <laughs> <laughs> because I I want to have no I want to have no video in my life apparently is what um was what I'm moving towards. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm reading no fiction um at the rate that I want to be reading fiction. So yeah. uh, I don't even want to have the cha- the opportunity to watch anything anymore. But I'm so glad I got to watch the bear. And yeah, I was. I'll just add for anyone, and if you haven't watched the bear, this will make no sense to you. But <laughs> I was. Um, my family has been here visiting, and we were in a donut shop the other day uh, near San Diego, and they were. I wasn't getting anything, uh, so I wasn't standing in the line with my parents, but they were in a line to order a donut, and I was just standing kind of next to them. But it was a tiny shop, so not a lot of space. And behind me was like, I guess, a little narrow hallway that led to the back where maybe the kitchen is. And so I wasn't looking that way. And I'm standing there and this, um, and a guy who works there came out of the back with like a huge basket of freshly baked donuts that had not been frosted yet. They were just piping hot and I didn't see him. And he came right up behind me and he goes, behind you, chef. And I was like, (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) And I just turned around really quickly because I didn't know any, and I just saw this guy just like walked past me. He pushed past me and walked past me with this huge, um, basket of steaming, um, fresh donuts. And I was like, wow, that was quite the moment. (laughs) Like immediately texted my brother. I'm like, someone in the donut shop just called me chef. And it was like the best moment of my week. Good thing you watched the show, though. It would have been lost. So, I know. I would have been like, that's really weird. Does he think I'm someone I'm not? <laughs> <laughs> but now I thought that was really cool. Um, so there's there's a chef moment, for a bear moment for everybody. <laughs> um, and that brings us to our final question of, of, the sh- of the show, of what will probably be part one of many visits from Erica in the future, if I can coerce her. Back to do um, some more work, to do some more talking with us. Yeah. Um, but this kind of almost might even seem repetitive asking you because this is all we've kind of all we've talked about the whole time. But we end every episode by asking our guests 
if they have a method of practicing attention, of working towards better attention, or just a method of that they might personally find very effective in being able to bring their attention to a single moment or a single task, kind of like to leave everybody with a new way to do this um, every week. So what what would you say if would be a method of attention that you find works? Sure. Um, I mean, it's sort of the subject of our podcast. Um, I, I do practice. <laughs> I know the whole, just <laughs> rewind and listen to the beginning. <laughs> no. no, no, no. I mean, I do practice. I do practice mindfulness daily. Um, it is a really important part mm-hmm. of my life and routine. And I, I will say that, um, when there have been periods of time when I'm not practicing, like I really notice the impact on, um, on my ability to attend to what, what is in front of me or to what I want to be attending to at any given moment. Um, and it, it's not necessarily that the practice pays off in, in that moment or even, that day, it's not that like transactional, but I find um, over time there's sort of like a cumulative benefit to having um, given some of my day to intentionally noticing present moment experience. And is that how you mostly define the practice of mindfulness for you? Is noticing the present, being aware of what of each moment, that kind of that kind of thing? Yeah, I think there's um, a layer of intentionality of entering a period of time. This is more formal, I guess, where you've decided right now I'm giving my attention to this experience and then allowing for, for that attention, you know, to, to see what, what you can see through, through that time, through that experience. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and I think a layer that often gets lost, even in my own practice, but that I'm working on emphasizing is like, can you meet all of the things that arise with like warmth and acceptance, like all of it. And that's a piece that feels really important to me right now. Yes. I think Tim, our editor who's listening right now, well, not right now, but soon (laughs) later, he's listening um, at some future moment, future present moment. He, I always think of him and quote him sometimes when when people say similar sentiments to what you were just talking about because he's always making me re-examine that idea of not not judging yourself when you are pulled out or for for the ways you are distracted and we have conversations about that from time to time so people forget that part of it too because it's not just you know, black and white or binary, you have to, you have to be okay with not being okay sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think that that's, um, it's a part of the mindful journey. Yes. Yep. As real full humans. So if people wanted to find you, Erica, where can they befriend you, <laughs> email you, talk to you, ask you <laughs> questions on the internet. This is where you're allowed to promote your book too, if you'd like. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not like in the classroom. No. Um, I have a website. It's wisemindsbighearts.com. Um, you can <laughs> definitely connect through there. And there's like a link to the book and another earlier book that I had released. Well, and um, I'm pretty sure that's my Instagram handle as well. Um, so those are two options. I'm happy to to connect with anyone who wants to have more of a conversation um, about the stuff. Cool. And your book is available on Amazon, I believe. I think that's where I got it. <laughs> remember now. Yes. Um, I'm assuming I will have mentioned this at the beginning when I record this introduction, but Erica's book is called Attention Hijacked, Using Mindfulness to Reclaim Your Brain from Tech. And I'll link to everything in the show notes as well. Well, it was really awesome to have you here, Erica. This is conversation uh, one of 40. Um, yes. That everyone can look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, Sarah. 
I'm so happy that Erica could join us for an episode of the show. She is an inspiration for doing what it takes to work closely with kids on their attention and awareness. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with her, and I truly hope you check out her book, which is available everywhere. You can let us know what you think by leaving a comment on Substack, a review in Apple Podcasts, and you can reach me on Twitter at scandela 9 You can listen and subscribe to the Optimus Podcast wherever you love listening to great podcasts. New episodes are released every Wednesday, and links to all of the resources are available in the show notes. The Optimus Podcast is brought to you by Engageable, the only app that gives you the mindful pulse you need for better attention, and it's free. Create an account today at getengageable.com or by downloading Engageable on any iOS or Android device. You can also follow us at Get Engageable on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening to The Optimalist. I'll be back next week with a new conversation. Stay engaged.